We're heading yet again toward a discussion that's been had a thousand times before with no great answer. The question being, how do we in the media cover Donald Trump when he inevitably announces another run for the presidency? And the truth is, I don't actually find it very complicated. Stop chasing the shiny objects. Just stop. Every outlandish statement isn't a story. Every press conference doesn't have to be televised. When he lies, use that word, lie. When he's saying something that doesn't add up, explain how it doesn't add up. Donald Trump is a media sugar rush. I get it. But he's using us. He's 100% using us. And if he's allowed to suck the oxygen out of the room once again, he will suck something else out of the room as well. Any lingering pieces of this democracy. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Katie Strang, the Athletic's outstanding senior enterprise and investigative writer and one of the best journalists on the planet. This is episode number 239. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Katie, I just want to say, um, you seem like you're an expert on multitasking. You cover multiple things. You're a mom. You're busy. I have a term that I've used and I've shared with friends of mine for writers who are incredibly self-indulgent, right? Like the guy I always think of, and I'm not asking you to bash anyone personally, is uh, Jason Whitlock. I don't even know if you know who he is. And I always say he writes like he doesn't have kids, which is to say... (laughs) everything is so important and this is the most important thing ever and you need to read this and why are more people reading this and I'm going to nominate myself for a Pulitzer because it's so important what you actually did. Maybe it's dumb. Like has having kids impacted your perspective or anything journalistically about you? It's almost been a whole scale overhaul of how I do my job in some ways in that it has required me to work more efficiently. Like I have to be a bit smarter about how I work. I have to prioritize a bit more deliberately. I'm not a very organized person that hasn't changed since having kids, but I think having to really delineate stuff that's going to bog me down and stuff that takes priority has become more and more essential to me. And I also think for me, um, and I don't think it requires having kids to make this paradigm shift. Um, But for me, I think I got better at my job because if I was going to be taking time away, you know, from my family and from my kids, um, I wanted it to be like purpose-driven work. I wanted it to be work that didn't just like drain me, but also sustain me and stuff that I felt strongly about. Like I'm, I did not want to be away from my kids to write like game stories that, and some people love that. I did not like that. And, you know, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was covering baseball and I don't love baseball. So it, you know, when you love the sport and you really like appreciate like all the nuance and the minutia, then I think you can make game stories really compelling. Like I was a shitty baseball writer because I didn't really like baseball and it didn't really appeal to me. Some people have that 
magic and that purity and that sanctity of in love with the sport. Um, I don't really have that anymore. So for me, it had to feel like something that was really sustaining, something that like really got me going at the, you know, beginning and end of each day because the days are long. (laughs) Wait, do you have that love still for hockey? Yeah, I do. I do for hockey. Yeah, there's something that I still really do love um, about hockey, but I wouldn't want to cover an 82 game season ever again. Like it's really, I mean, beat writing is, is essential, I think, but it's also so hard. Like it's such a grind. It's the best learning experience you'll ever go through as a writer of any age. And it like requires you to basically develop every tool in the tool belt, but I'm, I would never want to go back to it. Wait, so you covered the, um, you covered the Islanders for news. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you, they, they were fairly unmemorable teams. I would challenge you on that and say they were extremely memorable in how atrocious they were. All right, fair enough. And dysfunctional. So like both bad on the ice and also entirely dysfunctional. All right, so you covered your Newsday. I missed you at Newsday. I was in Newsday before you were there, but you covered the Islanders from 2009 to 2011. In hindsight, is it more fun covering a bad dysfunctional team? Hundred percent. I will. I would take. I would take a bad dysfunctional team over world beaters any day because I've covered both. Um, Because I, you know, I covered the Islanders for those first two years and they were abysmal. And it's so funny because so many of the guys from that team and the people from that organization are some of still the people that I love the most in in the hockey world because i think there is something you you do see people's like true character when shit is hitting the fan um and so i have like sort of a a deep connection and level of like sort of affinity and nostalgia for that time period of my life even though it was hard and even though it was like a bit miserable at times it was all what it was is it was always interesting there was never a dearth of things to write about. There was always something to pursue. I found like covering a, a really good winning team to be somewhat vanilla and boring. You know, winning masks a lot of things. So you don't see the like some of the internal issues bubble up when you have winning to obfuscate some of the like subterranean issues. This is totally random. Here's your random question of the day. I'm actually from New York and I grew up an Islanders fan. And I always found the plight of uh, Rick DiPietro fascinating. Number one, they trade an amazing goalie to free up the space for Rick DiPietro. He's this phenomenon. He's the number one pick in the draft. And it just doesn't work out at all. And you kind of catch it toward the real death and. of it all. Yeah. When you're covering this team and he's kind of lingering around, or he's are you, are you fascinated by Rick DiPietro? You're like, this guy's a fascinating story. You're just like, eh, I'm, I'm here five years too late. Oh, no, he was really fascinating, even at the time. And I still am fascinated by him. I mean, Rick has a really unique personality. And I'm, I'm really happy for him that, you know, he's found sort of his base in the sports media world. And I think he's really good at it. And that isn't surprising, because he was always like, he was also he was he was a personality like I I, lo- I liked that about him that he was colorful. He wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Um, he was opinionated. He had this sort of like chip on his shoulder at all times. I, I would say that how I would cover him now would probably be differently than I covered him then. Um, 
how I approached the beat would probably be entirely different. But, you know, when I look back at that now, I do so with such a significant amount more of empathy for or sympathy for him that, I mean, what he went through from a physical standpoint must have been um, not only so like grueling physically, but, you know, now that I'm older and more mature, I can maybe appreciate how, how much that must have affected him mentally and emotionally. And I wish I would have had a greater appreciation of that then. Not, not like I felt like I savaged him or anything, but you know, he was, he was dealing with a lot and, and, and it did complicate things for the team. He was also kind of like a victim of his circumstance. Like he was like, people always assume that these monster deals are good for the player. And to be clear, I'm I'm very firmly like team get your money. Like and I never begrudge a player for like taking, you know, the highest offer, taking as much money because like people will not be loyal to you. People are going to treat you like a commodity and an asset. So when you have the chance to cash in, you absolutely should. But I think it is a bit of a misunderstanding that people think that when you have all this money, like your problems are solved. Money can create problems. And a monster deal can create a level of expectation and pressure that can really have a deleterious effect. And for him, I think it certainly did. First of all, you get extra points for saying deleterious. Nice Thank job. You. Number two, you say um, you being older and more mature would sort of have you reassess the way you covered that. What is being older and more mature? How does that actually change the way you think you would go about it? And actually, I don't even know if it's like being older, or more mature, because I bet you at our place, like when I see, you know, I was 24 when I started covering the Islanders. When I see like 25 year old, 26 year olds covering the beat now, like I do think that they approach the job with much more like human compassion and appreciation for like the mental health side of the game. So I think part of it is like, you know, maturing as a person, but probably more significantly, like I think the business and the whole, our whole intersection with the sports world is different that we understand that element as like a historically underappreciated element for many, many years. And now I think we're just sort of coming to the point where we realize like what mental health and emotional well-being, what a vital role that plays um, for athletes and for anyone in a team setting. If you think about it, in sports coverage, literally from the beginning of sports coverage until a couple of years ago, we never covered that at all. Mental health literally wasn't a thing to cover, even though it's a huge thing. I suspect that part of it is um, there's like that, what is that like philosophy, like the Overton window of like when things sort of enter the mainstream and become a bit more acceptable to discuss, right? Like it's not like reporters back in the day didn't know if a guy was struggling mentally or had, you know, a substance abuse problem or was dealing with stuff, you know, from a mental health standpoint, like they knew that my guess is they would have likely thought that that was um, off limits or like not appropriate to even pursue as a line of reporting. Whereas I think now we're certainly as an industry, not perfect, but I do think we have a more holistic sense of seeing an athlete as a human being, right? A human being first, an athlete second. I mean, again, the industry is not perfect at this. I, I'm trying to, you know, be much more mindful and cognizant of that 
you know, in my job of treating athletes and their performances and their successes and their failures in a more holistic way that takes into account the individual and emotional well-being, the mental health, the pressure, you know, the family stress, the financial stress, everything. Whenever I have sort of older writers on here, I'm not saying you're an older writer, but when I have older writers on here, because I'm older than you, so I'm, I'm the older writer, I would say, it, does it get harder and harder to cover younger athletes? And you actually, interestingly, when you were an Islanders beat writer, their captain was Doug Waite, who was 40, and you were 24. And I wonder, like, when you're covering a guy with that much age and that much experience, and you're kind of a newbie, is there an intimidation factor? Can you break down those barriers fairly easily? There was not an intimidation factor with Doug. Doug was like pretty open um, and he was a pretty, he was injured a lot. So he wasn't actually around a ton, but he was, he was like very good with the media. He was very open and such. So I never felt like intimidated by him. I mean, there were definitely, you know, older guys on the team who I probably did not feel like I related to a ton from the sense of like, you know, I was a, 24 year old at one stage of my life. And I hadn't, you know, other guys are in this stage where they're have families and, you know, are sort of settled and have roots. And I, I didn't feel any of that. So that was probably easier for me to relate to younger players. Um, but, you know, I think you just sort of adapt a little bit, you know, I, I probably find myself now more relating to, you know, I don't, I don't relate to players in the sense that I like, I don't have TikTok or Snapchat and like, I don't know, you know, what the slang is probably these days, but, um, you know, sometimes I think having a little bit of like that distance can be like a healthy, like boundary, right? Like I don't, you know, when you're, especially as like a younger woman in this business, like you're, you're constantly like modulating and calibrating in your brain, like, you know, I better not be too friendly with this player because then people are going to assume I'm sleeping with them or, you know, like people are going to think, you know, I'm, you know, trading, you know, sort of trading on, on something to get scoops or whatever. Like, I mean, there's all these sort of like micro modulations that you do as a woman in this business. So in some ways, like that has eased a bit of that anxiety for me. So I think I feel less of that, you know, having, kids now of my own I do find that that's like something easier for me to talk about with players like when they have kids of a similar age like you know parenting in some ways is there are some universalities right like you know everyone has been through like a two-year-old tantrum if you are a parent of a certain age you know so I, I I do like having that um you know sort of thing to talk about but you know I certainly don't think that's you don't need to be a parent to have um, things to connect with someone about as a human being. Like, I think that's bullshit. And I, you know, I hate when like, you you wouldn't understand. I hate that. You wouldn't understand. Yeah. I hate when people like, I mean, there's definitely like a a total like agenda of like, you know, if you don't have, if you don't become a parent or you don't get married, like I hate that like that. Oh yeah. Me fucking nuts. And also it's like impossible to even have those things in this business. And it's such an unrealistic expectation. And I hate when there's any idea that you can't have like the most robust full life uh, without any of those things. And then probably there's an argument to be made that you can have much more of one without those things. You were whatever early twenties covering an NHL team. Did you have to deal with the 
hey, let's get a drink after so-and-so, or hey, let's blah, blah, like, was that a thing? Okay, so I felt like I did not deal with it a ton. I mean, I've definitely dealt with it in my career. I think, like, once you cover a beat, I think you get that a little bit less because you're not like a novelty. Um, You're around every day and you're asking hard questions. And so they sort of grow to, like, both accept and kind of disdain you. And you become almost like part of, like, the tapestry of a locker room if you're there every day. And so it's, you're not like new or interesting or novel. Um, so I don't feel like I got that a ton. You know, I, I definitely um, have experienced it more in, um, you know, in my career and in other avenues, but it's, it's primarily like when I'm not in a situation that I'm used to be in. So like a, a beat writing role or a team that I'm around a lot. Um, you know, there's certainly an element of, so hockey has like a big drinking culture. Right. And so, you know, one of the sort of like source build building things is like, you, you do have to kind of go out for drinks with people, like whether it's players or whether it's like executives, agents, scouts, like I'm okay with that. And I always wanted to be able to like socialize in a professional way with people to build trust and build relationships. And that's, that's necessary. Um, you know, it always is harder, I think for women, because, you know, when you like go out for drinks with, you know, someone as a, as sort of like a reporter source relationship, like you're more hyper vigilant and aware of wanting to maintain those boundaries. I would find that a little bit terrifying actually, in a way, like I would, I feel like every time I'm doing the impossible, putting myself in the mental space of being a woman reporter, going out with interviewing a source. I feel like every time some guy would lean in a weird way. Every time some guy would be like, can I buy you another? Every time some guy, some guy I'm interviewing would maybe touch you on the shoulder as he got up, whatever. I would be like, is this, is this guy thinking something different? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. Like you have to do a lot of that sort of like calculations on the fly. And, and, but you know, and, and I think that's, it's funny. Like I, I've, talk to younger reporters at our place and they've said like I only like you know meet sources for coffee or like for lunch and I'm like god that's really smart like I would it wouldn't have even like occurred to me 10 or 15 years ago like that that's like a boundary I could set um but I look I look at I'm like look at you that's such that's such healthy boundaries on your part like how do I get in on that like I don't even have like I'm not even good enough at that yet so it's that even having that conversation with younger women at our place was a, a good reminder to me that like we can all learn from each other. You know, like I, I try to mentor younger women and younger people um, at our place, but we're all like learning and evolving. And I just as much as, you know, hopefully I can offer some experience and, and guidance to some people like I learn a lot from them, too. I mean, it's a two way street. Well, let me ask you this. So I've interviewed. I've definitely interviewed people who've been drinking when they're talking to me. I mean, there is no doubt that it doesn't hurt when you, someone is talking and they have a drink in them. And I'm not saying I want to take advantage of someone being drunk, but it is different than coffee. Yes. Um, And so I would say like, I would never um, 
I, you know, I would try to avoid any interview situation where I knew someone was drinking, but I do think like, you know, there, do I think that you can have a source building or a trust building relationship over drinks as adults? Yeah, I do. Um, Do I think it's like sort of fraught with a whole other, you know, sort of set of issues that you're going to potentially have to deal with? Yeah. So there, there's some risk involved, you know, essentially. So I, I really appreciated to like hear from some of my younger coworkers that like, that's a hard line that they set. And I like that. I love that they feel comfortable doing that. Oh, you wrote a story that freaking blew my head. That I love it's a uh, dysfunction in the desert, finger pointing, fear and financial woes, Royal, the coyotes organization. Here's one thing the athletic does. that drives me freaking crazy. And I love the athletic. They don't always put the date on stories. It's a mystery. Sometimes the date's there. Sometimes the date's not there. When did this come out? Do you know exactly? I want to say February. Okay, that's, right. that's what I would say. This is my favorite part of this fantastic story. It wore my heart and I want to talk about it. So Bill Armstrong was the GM of the Coyotes. You're making a face. and I knew that was going to be. I mean, I knew, like that's the thing that people always ask me about. So I'm being cliche and unoriginal. No, not at all. No, not at all. Like that's, that's what I would probably hone in on too. Fair enough. You wrote um, in November. So the whole story is like this real deep dive into the uh, – toxic world of the coyotes. Um, and you wrote in November agitated that the organizational information had been obtained by the athletic Armstrong contacted this reporter offering a theory that his daily schedule and other files had been stolen from his computer. He warned that the person who he surmised was responsible was going to jail, would be going to jail after delivering a lecture on journalism ethics. Armstrong asked this reporter what she thought would happen if he were to tell general managers around the league, how she did her job. First of all, it's fucking badass. My thought for you is here's what you should say your beat is hockey and assholes. Like you basically cover hockey and assholes. Yeah. When he says that to you. I have pretty good job security as a result. <laughs> you sure do. When he literally says to you, he warns you, what do you think, you know, what would you say? What do you think would happen if I tell general managers how you do your job? Is he saying that on the phone or in person first of all? On the phone. What is your reaction when you get that? I did not like that. Um, you know, I've been motherfucked with the best of them and I've done my share of that also. And I believe in being able to have those sort of heated discussions when you're sharing or you're discussing things that are contentious in a source of disagreement. I think that's healthy. Like I I'm fine with that. And I've dealt with that plenty in my career. I do not like being threatened. I do not like being bullied. And so I was not a fan of that tactic. What do you say to him when he says it? You know, it was such in it was such a bizarre call that I was I was really caught off guard. And I so I wish I was quicker on my feet. I'm not very quick on my feet. Like I, I always am the person that thinks of things that they, yeah, just, they would say like, you know what I mean? Um, the whole entire call, like the, the sort of tone and content of the call was so bizarre that it felt like my mind was constantly like trying to put, first of all, I, I couldn't quite understand what he was trying to suggest at first. Um, and so my brain was kind of trying to play catch up and I'm also like at the time calibrating, like, wow, this is really wild. I have never had a conversation quite like this. Um, and also, you know, 
taking notes because this felt um, very sort of abnormal and out of the ordinary. And it also underscored some very central themes to the story, which were paranoia, threatening, intimidation, like harassment, you know, bullying, that type of stuff was frequently talked about as sources of concern within the office. And so it felt like this sort of like art coming to life type moment. And so I I was very caught off guard, but I did not like that. I'm a lot of things, (laughs) but I, I am not shy about defending myself and I will stand my ground, especially when it comes to my reporting and my integrity and my ethics. Um, So I think I was more or less just kind of taken aback. And I think my response was something along the lines of like, go ahead and tell people what I'm doing. Like what I'm doing is my job and I, I do it well. I'm being a thorough reporter. Like you may not like that, but that's the reality of the job. And that's not my problem. Did you ever hear anything from him after the story ran? No. These guys are a bunch of cowards. How did this story come to be? Like, how did you actually first realize there's a real dysfunction issue here with the Arizona Coyotes? So in like, I want to say like the summertime or the early fall, I knew that they were um, missing like bonus payments to players. So like signing bonuses that they were not making. I mean, that's a big deal in the NHL world. Like, you know, their contracts aren't a suggestion, you know, signing bonuses are something that players, you know, pencil in and count on and expect to see in their bank account the very day that they're supposed to be there. Wait, so it doesn't say, it doesn't say we might pay you (laughs) $500,000. Right. So, you know, I, I knew that there were some mispayments and it was causing some ripples And so I just kind of started like pulling string on it and asking around. And it was one of those stories that the more I pulled on, like the more things started unraveling to the point where it became very difficult. We we almost ran the story at several different points, but like more batshit crazy stuff kept happening. So we had to sort of like move the goalposts and kind of re-rack and recalibrate to make sure that the story encapsulated all of that as well. It became one of those, you know, I have certain like projects every year that become a bit like pregnancies, right? Like they take so long and then you like finally give birth. And by the time that it's time for that, like you're like three months, you feel like you're about three months past your due date. You just described book. You just described every book. I've yeah, that's why I have never taken on a book. Yeah, you just described <laughs> it perfectly. That was really well done. Having yeah. never been pregnant, I, that sounds very relatable though. Wait, so I just, I'm really fascinated by the doggedness of reporting on this one. Like- For myself, when I report things, it always starts with one and kind of goes with someone saying, you should call this. Oh, you know, you should call, you should call this person. And then that person turns to three and that person turns to five and that person turns to 10. And all of a sudden, is that sort of your device for reporting or are you having been entrenched in the hockey world? Do you know precisely these are the people I should be calling? I knew some of the people that I wanted to call, but the reality is I ended up making like a ton of cold calls in a ton of calls to people that I did not know because so much of that story revolved around the inner workings of the office. And so that was not like, it was, you know, there's very kind of little in the story about the actual hockey operations 
apparatus. It's much more about like the infrastructure of the office, whether it's like business, ticket sales, marketing, communications, you know, HR, all those, you know, all those departments that make a team and an organization work um, that you don't typically cover as a sports writer. So it was, it was me calling people that, you know, I had never met or heard about and who didn't know me. And so that made it challenging because, you know, you have to try to forge a level of trust with people who are, who are taking a real risk in talking to you about something that could cost them their livelihood. Wait, let's go. Let's delve into this one big time. All right. So you're cold calling people, mm-hmm. people who work for the team, et cetera. Number one, what is your device for, for, for finding phone numbers these days? I ask people, well, two ways. I either ask people that I trust for the numbers or I use Nexus, which works in the U S but it's means fuck all. If it's, if it's someone in Canada, my new money device has been, have you ever used whitepages.com? Yes, but I find it to be relatively unreliable. Oh man. I think it's gold. Because there's a ton of relative numbers too, which is very interesting. Yeah, but so that can backfire because so Nexus, like when you don't have a great search, certain things make Nexus, a a person on Nexus more difficult to find. Like if they're young, it's harder. If they have a common name, it's obviously harder. If they have not lived in one place for a long period of time, it's harder. I find that like, especially because I almost exclusively report on sensitive things, people do not like it when you accidentally call a family member. You know, if, it, like if I'm doing a story about like a predator or some something that involves like abuse, you don't want to unwittingly expose someone as, a, you know, a potential victim of abuse to a family member that might not even know. So like these are all the calculations that I take into my. Does Nexus now have cell numbers? It does. Yeah. There's a period in time when I was just because Nexus used to be my gold standard because I used to get <laughs> passwords I wasn't supposed to have for Nexus from different people I worked with. You know how that goes. Everyone shares a password sure. for Nexus. And it used to only have home numbers. And that's when I switched over to the white pages because nobody has a home number anymore. So that's good. So you're cold calling someone. Do you text first or do you call? No, I call first. Why? I always text first. I feel like I have a batting. I, I feel like I have a better batting average um, when I just catch someone and, and I'm able to like appeal to them person to person and make my pitch. Because I find, I'm sure you're the same way. Well, maybe you're not. Like when someone calls me on the phone and I don't recognize a number, I never pick up. So if someone doesn't pick up when you're calling to talk to them, will you leave a message? Yes. What would you say your batting average is on callbacks off of messages? It depends how sensitive the story is. Um, It still surprises me that anyone calls me back or picks up my phone call at this point in time. So, you know, better than I think. I think, you know, there are certain things where it makes sense, I think, to text first, um, especially like when, you, when you're, you know, one thing that was hard about the Coyote story is I wanted to be careful about calling people during work hours. So I often didn't and I would wait till nighttime, but that was even kind of hard practically just because, they're two hours behind. So if I'm waiting for like, you know, six, seven o'clock at night, then I'm starting my calls at like eight or nine my time. Cold calls are my least favorite thing in the world. I hate cold calls. I so hate they are my bread and butter. Like I exist on cold calls. My last book was all about cold texts. Like for me, I was writing a book about Bo Jackson. I was researching it and it wasn't a sensitive topic. So I could just say, hey, my name's Jeff Herman. I'm working on this book. And I always include, when I text someone, I always include some article about them. Always. If I'm calling like Bo Jackson's old quarterback from Auburn, 
I'll find on newspapers.com some clip about him, the quarterback himself, and say, hey, my name's Jeff. I found this, and I, you know, I'm really working hard on this story. I want to see if I could talk to you. And that always helps. So that's really smart. I do find that if people can tell that you've done your homework, you have an astronomically better chance of them talking to you. Now, another reason I'm more reluctant about text is because a lot of the stories that I write are very sensitive from a legal perspective. So I don't like to put a lot in writing. You don't want a paper trail, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So someone picks up the phone. You're cold calling someone about this hyper, hyper sensitive story. You call. Mm-hmm. He or she picks up. You say what? I say, hi, my name's Katie Strang. You know, I'm a senior writer with The Athletic or senior investigative writer with The Athletic. There's a story that I'm working on um, and I I wanted to get a chance to talk to you about. Sometimes I'll say, um, if if a story is based on a tip, I will tell them. I will say, I got a tip two months ago about something. It's something that I want to look into. Here's why I think that's important for me to look into. You know, if it's an abuse situation, I will say, you know, I got a tip about this. I'm looking into it because this involves like player safety or players well-being. And I think this is really important for me to do my due diligence on. I usually say, is there anything that you think I should know? Is there anything that you think if you were me, you would look into knowing what you do know about the topic? And this is the single most um important question I use at the start and at the end of every call is who do you think I should be talking to? And you try to get this all in really quickly at the beginning? No, I mean, sometimes, you know, so much of it is like, you have to decide, like, (laughs) you can tell if you're going to have a very short window or you have a little bit longer of a leash. And so you have to, you know, I kind of have a blueprint for what I'm going to say, but you have to always be willing to adjust on the fly. Okay, so let me give you a few responses. Tell me what you do. Hi, it's Katie, blah, blah, blah. Fuck you, fuck the media. I'm not talking. Give me a fucking break. But they don't hang up. They just say, fuck you, blah, blah, blah. Do you just say, okay, I understand, or do you go for a second? I would say, like, you sound really upset. And just leave it and see what they say. Like, then they'll tell you why they hate the media, right? Um, And, like, you know, you can work with that. Like, that's you're gaining information about that person. So you know, then go from there. Right. And one of the, one of the things that I do a lot is if someone is unsure, I'm not a big pusher. I'm not, um, I could maybe stand to, I, I am a very aggressive person, like personality wise, but I do find that with sensitive stories that being aggressive with people who are potential sources, not principals in the story, who I'm pretty fine with being aggressive (laughs) toward. Um, but I find that like pushing and pressuring doesn't really work and is, is not normally like very appropriate and often is ineffective anyway. So one of the things is if I sense that someone's like reluctant or scared or hesitant, I usually like try to give them a level of control and comfort back, which is to say like, Hey, I know I'm calling you completely out of the blue. I'm probably bothering you at work. This might not be a good time. What I'd like to do is, can I send you an email with a few clips of stories that I've written that show how I like to like handle and tackle sensitive subject matter? Would that be okay? And so then you have a contact, like another form of sort of like more easily controlled contact with the person that they can, you know, sort of dictate the terms of engagement on their own terms. And then you give them a chance to like read something that is relevant 
to what you're pursuing. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, calling about someone that's a predator, like I will, I will send stories that involve sexual abuse so that people can see like how I tackle a story like that. And I do think having real tangible examples can really help. I always think that um, the more you can let the person in on the process, sure. the better. You know, the one thing that like I have found, and I remember reading this like in a book somewhere of like, if you just like kind of take your ego out of it and like ask people for help, like, hey, I, like, I don't know this. I don't know this organization or I don't know this person. Like I'm looking for some help. And, and so I think people naturally respond to um, calls for help, pleas for help. And also like one of the most effective things that I think I can use is to say, I want to get this right. I think people can appreciate when you're earnest and sincere about wanting to do a good job and wanting to put forth the effort to get something right. And I think that is appealing to people. I agree. I think it turns them into like problem solvers to try to help you. Even if they can't help you, they might be willing to like direct you to someone that does. And sometimes if someone's getting real skittish, I will sort of like kind of bail on trying to get any information from them. And what I will do instead is say like, okay, hey, this, you might not be the right person to call here who do you think I should call? And what that does is it like instantly relieves a bunch of pressure on them and it, it spins them into like, basically who can I voice her on? And, and, but often you learn two things, which is like one, another person to call, but two, usually like when they tell you who else you should be calling, they will tell you why. And that information, it is information. So you are still gathering information, but you're doing so in like a much lower leverage of a way for that person where they can feel comfortable. Also, a lot of times, the longer you have someone on the phone, even if they're saying, oh yeah, I'll tell you who you should call, but you should definitely don't get, you didn't get it from me. They'll end up actually, I'll tell you one thing. Look, I'll tell you one thing, but just, just this real quick. Like, I feel like that happens a lot. Absolutely. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's still home from college for winter break. So, Casey, I heard Taylor Swift redid all her albums. Uh Uh-huh. You know who's awesome? That guy on TikTok. Uh Uh-huh. I'm feeling hella dope. Let's get matching tats, kid. No. What the hell? You've been home for a while now, and I'm trying to connect with you, college kid, but nothing works. Just because I'm 18 doesn't mean I'm into trivial stuff. Talk to me about the goods. RoyalRetros.com throwback Doug Flutie jerseys, handcrafted and perfect for the late holiday gift. I hear Stranger Things is crazy. Dad, stop. You have a detail in this story that I freaking love. It's my favorite detail in the story, actually. And it's so tiny, and I bet no one has asked you about this. Alex Jr., what was his title at the time? Was he the assistant GM at the time? No, I think he was like the... At a high level with this. Yeah, sure. And you wrote... (laughs) His penchant for scrolling through YouTube videos unrelated to hockey during the workday was well-known around the office. I'm a huge fan of, like, I always talk about this on this podcast, the color of the car, what book the guy was reading. The fact that this guy, like, scrolling through YouTube videos is a blissful little, it says so much, even though it's so tiny. When you get little things like that, are you aware at the time, holy shit, that's kind of gold? 
Yes. Um, so you've worked, worked with George Dorman, right? Of course. Yeah. So he's my editor and I adore him. Love he, there's no one better. I'm so lucky to have him. Um, and he is such a good like mentor, friend, colleague to me and has just been like an invaluable source of advice for me. And so we call those things um, our hair gel details. And the reason why is um, George was one time like he, he was trying to like either he was trying to describe to someone or someone was describing to him like what a what a random guy was like. And they were like, you know, he's one of those guys that just wears like a lot of hair gel. And he's like, oh, got it. Totally got it. Like my thing is I'm like, you know, the guys that wear like their sunglasses, but they have like a one of those like lanyards around the sunglasses. Like, you know who the guy is then, right? Like, you know, exactly. You can just dial that image right up. So we always call those like our hair gel details. And so I look for those all the time. Um, hair gel details are very important to me. Another thing that are very important to me are like, I love the use of Easter eggs in stories. So I love, if I have some information that I know I need more on, but don't have enough to report, I'll like bury a little Easter egg of information in a story that essentially serves as like a flashing red light to anyone that has knowledge of this to say like, Hey, if you know something about this, I'm bearing this Easter egg in the story. Like, I want you to come to me for information. Wait, give me an example. What do you mean? Okay. So let me, I, I, I have to be careful here because it's an example with a sensitive story. There was a story that I wrote within the past like year and a half where I feel like there was an entirely new avenue of inquiry for me to explore that I really wanted to dig in in on, but I was, I was encountering a lot of roadblocks and some of it involved some incidents happening at a certain location. And so I found a way to like put that town in a story that, you know, it fit in the story. So if you don't know about it, it would, it would not strike you as an Easter egg, but if you do know about it, you would be like, huh, that's interesting that she'd put that in there. And it, it would definitely like get the wheels turning for you. Awesome. And I did get it based on it. I just want to say my hair, my, the phrase I've used in my career uh, for hair gel, someone said this to me when I was at SI, is they said, so-and-so is the kind of guy who puts the highest grade gas in a rental car. <laughs> That's funny. That's good. I mean, that, those are like such good details, right? Yeah, pretty good. Wait, I got to ask, I'm required to ask this question on this podcast. What is the best confrontation you've had in your career as a journalist? Oh, it's hard because I've had a lot. I was going to say, you're, you're sitting there like you've had none, and I know you've had about... No, I mean, I've had so many is probably the thing. The people that I end up like having fuck you matches with, like sometimes become my best sources. Because I do think there is an element of like you temper relationship, like, like wood is tempered, right? Like that sometimes having those arguments lead to like some mutual understanding. Were you ever after a, a rough conversation, call someone or text someone and be like, no hard feelings? No. <laughs> Are you sure you're not from New York? Cause I'm from New York. You have. <laughs> I live there enough that you can't take the New York out you of me. New no. York. No, I mean, no, I'm not like a, Hey, let's bury the hatchet type of. So here's one thing I think, and this goes back to the coyotes, Bill Armstrong example. Like I'm a big believer in like 
<laughs> being very holistic about your reporting. So using everything but the kitchen sink in your reporting. So for example, like when we, we like, we wrote this story, Britt Jorley and I wrote this in Ken Rosenthal wrote the story about Mickey Calloway, mm-hmm. um, like harassing female reporters and his attorney was something else like in his, so this was a maybe a confrontation i don't i consider this a very low grade confrontation right. like if you're not real like you know cussing exchange um but he was basically like you know telling me that we couldn't use certain information and that we were pulling quotes out of context and i was like no i have this we have this recorded. <laughs> so, and he's like, no, that that's not like a direct quote. I'm like, no, we, I mean, we have it on like on a, on an audio recording. So this is verbatim. <laughs> like, and then he was being like, you know, it's not authenticated. So you don't even know if that's me or like, I mean, he was just di- like, just doing this, just digging a hole left, right and center. And in doing so, he was just like spinning out and flailing and floundering and just like, throwing anything at the wall to see what would stick. And so we used all that because we're like, this is how it works. Like I sometimes think that like showing how the sausage is made is important for people to like an important part of the reporting to see like, especially for stories that I do that are very sensitive. It's good for people to know like sort of the process of reporting and the diligence and the comprehensiveness and reporting. I also do think it's important for people to know the attempts and lengths that people go to to try to thwart your reporting and stymie your reporting and gaslight you in your reporting um, and treat you a certain way in your reporting. I mean, that's essentially, I do not like, um, and maybe that's why I'm not being great at like summoning a confrontation. I don't actually like talking about my confrontations with people because I do like to kind of keep them privileged unless I feel like it really like crosses a line or is really essential to the story, which is why I put that anecdote in there about the coyotes thing is because all all it did was underscore the very like thematic foundation of the story itself, which is like, I'm going to write about an organization that is rife with paranoia, you know, bullying, intimidation, like, threatening behavior. And then I'm going to also show you what that looks like, you know, and on a very like intimate level. And so that's why we decided to put it in there. But even that, like, I still don't even really like talking about that ton, a ton, because I don't, I like there to be as little about me in the reporting as possible. It's a very refreshing 2021 take. When I came up, it was all about like, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. And nowadays, it just feels like way too much, way too many of our peers in this industry make it entirely about them, which is very frustrating to me. I would make a really shitty columnist for that reason. Like, I have like two strong takes a year that I'm like, I need to write a column and I need to just like rage fuel, like rage vomit this out onto the page. And like this, I'm going to pick my spot and I'm going to do it. And this is going to be it. But like, I would be a shitty columnist because like, I, I can't, I can't like summon an arbitrary take for some reasons. And I'm also like not deluded to think people always give a shit what I have to think. You know what I mean? Right. So I think people that are like calmness and do it well, I have such a respect for because I, I don't have that aptitude or acumen. Wait, let me ask you the last thing super, super quick. 
How do you walk away from your job? How do you do your job? I'm looking at literally the stories. I'm looking at the list of the stories you've written and not think men are just the grossest, most scummiest. You just write nonstop about awful, the awfulness of men in power positions in sports. And I look around sometimes and I'm like, God, it's just freaking ridiculous. Well, it's not just men. Um, I, and I don't see it as like a, a gender thing, to be honest. I think it, I feel more so about like people in, I think it's often like circumstance. So like people who have risen to pow, positions of power and authority and influence, yeah. um, this job has naturally made me more skeptical of people in positions of power and authority and influence. It hasn't made me feel really differently about men because there are plenty of good men and there are plenty of good men who have helped not just like report these stories with me, but also like guided my reporting and helped me in my reporting. So I always tell people that like my line of work is really depressing, but for every two shit bags that there are, there's one person willing to stick their neck out to help you if only for they believe it's the right thing to do. And so there is always that like subtle, like, but really significant affirmation in humanity. Well, listen, Katie, I think you're just a fucking badass motherfucker. I really do. I like badass, like my favorite kind of reporter, huge admirer. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Seriously. Well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And thank you for having me on. I want to thank today's guest, Katie Strang, for joining me on True Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Katie on Twitter at Katie J Strang and read her work in The Athletic. If you have a chance and enjoy True Writers Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.